This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can send us a text at 2057 or an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. And I think the most popular man on Reality Check Radio is with me today. It's Wally Richards, our gardening guru. Good morning, Wally. Good morning, Rodney. But I, I heard that you were more popular than me. No, 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 no. I had a meeting with a whole lot of RCR listeners and all I got was people like me because I like, because I knew you. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone, people were coming and they say, oh, I do love Wally. I love Wally. I love his tips. I love his show. And you know what they particularly loved Wally? No. Again, feedback is that your advice is very practical and very inexpensive mm. because you, oftentimes the advice you're getting is from businesses that are selling you stuff and to grow carrots you need to spend a small fortune but to grow carrots with Wally you just need a bit of chicken poop or horse manure a bit of cardboard and uh, a bit of lawn to turn into a garden and hey presto your carrots are away so they do appreciate that Wally Yes, well, gardening should not be expensive, ideally. It, it should be relatively cheap because if you end up paying $20 to grow a cabbage, you might as well go and pay $10 at the supermarket <laughs> yeah. and buy a cabbage. Um, so, yeah, it depends. The problems that arise sometimes, like um, caterpillars um, up north, they've got a plague of these creatures called um, army worms, which are not worms at all. They're actually a caterpillar. And I was talking to a guy um, just the other day, and he said, even in my lawn eating the grass, he was saying that locally to where he was, a commercial grower of um, vegetables has had his whole paddocks wiped out. Another, Another grower... Um, hydroponically, which means it would be under um, glass house or something like that, hydroponics. Um, once again, he's lost all his crops completely. And, and these ferocious little creatures, um, they live in the soil. So I suppose, uh, well, they don't so much live in the soil. They pupate in the soil, right? So they'll come along. And they come from a moth. They don't come from a butterfly, right? So they come along and she lays her eggs on your cabbages or whatever. And now here's an important thing too. When people go out to this um, garden centre or mitre tea and whatever and buy their seedlings, they should, before they plant them, check them for eggs because quite often they will bring the problem in on their plants, put them in the ground, little plants get established, the eggs hatch out, gobble, 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 no more plant. My goodness. Oh, yeah. So, and if if I bought a plant for my to 10, where would I look for the eggs? Everywhere. Um, yeah, little yellow um, eggs, quite small, but very visible to the human eye, and all you've got to do is rub them off. Um, oh, my goodness. Simple as that. 
You don't need to spray or anything. Um, but the foliage should be checked. It's usually under the leaf okay. is where you find them, but sometimes um, on the top of the leaf, and that cleans them up. But these um, army worms, as they're called, uh, after they've finished and reached maturity, they will drop off the plant, bury themselves in the ground, and then pupate. Then later on, of course, emerges a moth. And they do the damage as a caterpillar in the ground or as the moth? A caterpillar on the plant. That's where they're eating. They don't, they actually, I presume they live on the uh, plant itself while they're feeding. There's no point going downstairs, having a nap, and then coming back up again. (laughs) And is that, are they a new thing, Wally? Um, Apparently so. Um, They came, as everything comes from Australia, of course. Um, But I'm amazed this season why there is such a prolific amount of them. Like we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands. We're not talking about, you know, the white butterfly. And if you're a commercial grower getting wiped out, I mean, you're looking at your crop and across it every day, right? Yeah, yeah. Like um, the cost of sprays for the, um, what's the name, becomes horrendous. Um, It's a no-win factor for commercial growers. And, of course, here's the clutch of the whole thing. If you go to the supermarket maybe not us, but some people, and they see a hole in the cabbage leaf, they go, oh, it's insects, right? They, they they want to see a perfect cabbage. Yes. Yet I know other people that they look for a cabbage with a hole in it because they think it's safer than something's <laughs> actually eaten it. It's, it's not poison. <laughs> no, it's not so poisonous, my God. Um, well, sorry, carry on. And I was going to say, my partner recently, she said to me, uh, with some of my, um, I think it was pak choy growing, she said, they've got holes in the leaves. And I said, yeah, but you don't eat the holes. You eat the bits <laughs> on the outside. <laughs> oh, but I must admit how we affected because, as you know, I'm very new to this gardening business, Wally. Mm-hmm. And while I've always, well, I've taken up, cooking and learned to cook about 10 years ago and to become a very keen home cook and not eating out and buying fast food and eating healthy a la Western A price. But I was addicted and loved the supermarket. So I like my eggs in a carton all nice and clean. I like my meat not dripping blood all in a nice little plastic packet with a bit of polystyrene and I love walking down the green grocery in the supermarket and all this perfect fruit uh, fruit and veggies sitting there like out of a you know just so wonderful and the other day I found myself in a organic market and I looked at the vegetables and to me you see this is the this is the problem of I guess consumerism to me, they didn't look very appetizing <laughs> because they're a bit wrinkly, 
bit shriveled, bit tatty, had some holes in them. And of course, we've been conditioned now to what we think a cabbage should look like. Mm, yeah, true. Um, they're looking for perfection. Yes. Um, but the problem, of course, if you compare uh, what you grow naturally in your garden to what you buy in the supermarket, and the taste is incredibly different. Incredibly different. Incredibly different. Um, particularly if you put the minerals into your garden, mm. um, using natural things, animal manures, et cetera, et cetera, maybe a little bit of um, ocean solids, maybe a little bit of um, magic botanic liquid, which are mineral-rich, that increases the um, taste of them and the goodness. And, and, and the key for nutritional value is if it tastes good without having to use any condiments, it means it's got a lot of nutritional value. If it doesn't taste good, it's just bland, it means, hello, there's nothing in there of any great goodness. And this is a problem that people have. They'll go down and buy all their stuff from the supermarket and so forth, make up a big meal, and they eat the meal, and when they've finished eating a good-sized meal, they still feel hungry. Yes. And, and the reason being is that their body is saying to them, hey, excuse me, um, where's all the vitamins, where's all the minerals? You know, I haven't seen any of them yet. Mm. All I've seen is a whole lot of chemical poisons, uh, insecticides and, mm. and stuff, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> which is no particularly good to me. <laughs> and, and so then people tend to go off and, and pig out on some potato chips or something, you know, yeah. to make themselves feel, feel full. But they are full, and this is one of the reasons we have obesity these mm. days is because the nutritional value in the veggies and fruit is not there. So they inadvertently think, oh, I haven't had enough to eat, and they stuff some more in. Well, it's funny, isn't it, because my little girl has an apple in the lunchbox every day, and if it has the merest blemish, she'll go through, you know, the fruit bowl and put that one to one side to get the perfect-looking apple. And, of course, you and I know that apples grown properly are blemished and have little impurities and maybe even a bug or two in them. <laughs> but she's conditioned to have the perfect apple. And I'll tell you a funny one for me. I actually struggled to eat uh, organic eggs and farm-raised eggs because, to me, they're too strong. Um, and uh, I've I've got so used to bland eggs that real eggs taste off or odd to mm. me, and yet I actually know in my heart of hearts that they're more nutrient dense and that right. the yolk is more yellow and it's better for me, but I'm so used to an insipid, commercially grown egg that a proper egg um, – is a surprise to my taste, and I'm just not conditioned to it. So it's a funny, it's a it's a funny world. But I know this, Wally, from my lettuces, which just I had, I I I plucked the end of my lettuces. So what's this? The total end of May, and I accidentally started gardening by having some of my mother's seeds and throwing them on the onto some uh, compost, 
and they grew like crazy. And I've had three months of lettuces virtually every day because I put them in my sandwiches with Marmite. We've had lettuces, lettuces. The neighbors have had lettuces and lettuces. My goodness, they taste wonderful. And Ooh. I am, as you know, I'm a gardening convert. Right. Uh, I've got a couple of questions for you, Wally. Okay. Now, I'm I'm behind on my mailbag, so we'll do mailbag next. We're going to have you on at least every fortnight. Um, I am an enthusiast always, and I get carried away, and I do things to the nth degree. So um, I always mess it up by overdoing it. So if I think one thing's good, 10 must be better, if you know what I mean. And I fear that I have got carried away and planted things way too early. Um, And I wonder what happens to vegetables if you plant them a month too early, either in your glass or tunnel house or in your garden. Does that mean that they store and then catch up later? Do they die? Or do they grow and have no fruit? What what happens to vegetables planted too soon in the growing season? Mainly because I'm reading a book that might be for the North Island and here I am in central Otago. Right, okay. It's not planting too early, it's planting too late is the problem. Ah. And, And it's all to do with daylight hours. So at the moment... We are just about a month away from the shortest day, right? Yeah. So we're coming down, depending upon where you are, to roughly eight hours of light a day. Yeah. Right? In When we get around six months later, of course, we've got the longest day, and there we have looking towards about 16 hours of light a day, right? Eight yeah. hours of darkness. Okay. So plants need light to grow right, because they take uh, the sunlight, convert it to uh, carbohydrates, and that's their um, growth material, and that's what makes them grow. So if we plant late in the season, and late in the season is now, um, our cabbages, whatever, chances are they'll grow a little bit, but not much, and then when the daylight hours start to extend, going into, say, August, um, they will do what we call bolt. They will go to seed. Ah. And because they've had a check in their life, and any plant that gets a check, it's stopped growing for some reason, maybe a drought, maybe um, the amount of light they're getting, et cetera, et cetera, maybe... um, anything that causes them to stop, the plant says, oh, my God, I'm going to die. All I want to do is reproduce myself and go to seed. And that's why they go to seed, is to save themselves through their prodigy. Got it. And that could be caused by insufficient light. It's funny because you say too late, and I – this is me being a non-gardener, I was thinking too early, which meant, you know, planting now instead of three months later or two months later, but actually you're thinking of too late the season. But 
it's the light that's critical rather than temperature, or is it both? Mainly light, temperature secondly. Isn't that interesting? So even in your glass house or tunnel house, there's a limit to what you can achieve because a tunnel house and a glass house is about the temperature, but the limiting factor will become the light. Yeah, um, temperature and shelter because they're not buffered by the wind, okay. um, cold winds, et cetera, et cetera. They're protected, so they're in a, uh, a microclimate environment. But, but if they don't get sufficient light in the day, they will grow, and then as the daylight hours lengthen, rather than producing, say, a nice head of lettuce or some nice broccoli or a nice cabbage head, They'll just run to seed. Yes. So anything that has the form of head yeah. is not so advantage to a plant that doesn't form a head, like drunken woman lettuce, right? Yeah. You can harvest the outside leaves. Now, okay, they may not grow fast, but you can still harvest a reasonable amount of them. Same with silver beet. Um, you don't uh-huh. harvest the whole plant. You just take the outer leaves. Um, they will give you, through the winter time when there's minimal growth, still some produce, particularly if you planted a lot like you did with your packet of lettuce seeds. Yeah, mm. <laughs> you get heaps. So yeah. um, the they will still grow to a point, um, but you can overcome that if you want to by putting some lights into your glass house. Now, commercial growers do this. They will get a string of lights. They don't have to be grow lights. They can be, and nowadays we've got these modern type lights, which are quite cheap to run, but incandescent and um, fluorescent is the ideal combination. And they put these in their glass house and round about, say, 5 o'clock at night, this time of the year, or even 4 o'clock, they will turn them on and run them for maybe about four hours. And then then it would turn off, have some night time, and then in the early hours of the morning, say about, say, 4, no, say 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, they'll turn the lights back on, automatically controlled. So you've now extended the light hours of those plants in the glass house up to 12 or 16 hours by using artificial light. How amazing is that? Because yeah. I always thought that a glass house was simply about warmth. But no. it's not enough. Well, see, here's another aspect. You germinate some seeds, right, and you do it in the kitchen on the windowsill. When those seeds sprout and they grow up a little bit, they stretch to the window because they're looking for light, right? Now, in a glass house, on the shelf, you germinate your seeds and they grow straight up, sturdy, strong, because Uh they don't have to stretch because the light is coming from above, not sideways. Oh, how fascinating and how wonderful. Um, I may have been naughty because I planted broad beans 
and I planted some outside. I got my little girl to plant them because she decided she couldn't take school. And I said, well, we're going to have to work. And we worked in the rain and I had some board beans and she planted some in the ground and some in our tunnel house. How do you think they will go? Um, interesting. The broad beans need to be pollinated. It's usually bumblebees that do the pollination for you, and they come in underneath the flower to get the nectar, and that sets the fruit. Hence, people growing broad beans in the early part of the season when they're flowering, before the bumblebees get out in action, they get no fruit. Uh, beans. They just get flowers that wither and fade. And then later on, the broad, uh, bumblebees come along and they start pollinating and then they get um, beans forming. So it, it's it's a bit of a problem. Um, in a glass house, tunnel house, chances are, unless you've got a lot of bumblebees around and they can find their way in, um, uh, you would have some nice-looking plants and some nice-looking white flowers with yeah, little funny. black dots and so forth, and that's fine. That's that's very good. Uh, you may be, not get many beans. Could I pretend to be a bumblebee, Wally? Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit complicated. It's, it's it's kind of with bean flowers. It's the bottom part of the flower that needs to be flipped or tapped. So. Yeah that it actually moves the pollen to have it um, fruiting. Some beans are self-fertile. You don't have to do anything. They just set themselves. Um, but, yeah, broad beans are a bit of a problem. Well, um, we might – I'll have to talk to Grace about this because she her, she her, her expectations could be dashed. But I did tell her that it's a Fort Prospect gardening like life and you've got to prepare for disappointments and adversity and overcome it but we might have some fun pretending to be bumblebees yeah a little brush to, yeah yeah like look at the flower and and open it up and, and with a little um brush that you use children use for doing yeah. their painting stuff sort of thing a nice soft one poke that in there give it a swirl around, and that may be sufficient to see. So it. it pollinates its own flower, or do you got to take it to another plant? No, you don't take It's a self-pollinating. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, we will attempt that if we get the growth. Now, Wally, more sensible people, because I get your wonderful email, and I recommend to listeners, if you love Wally like we all love Wally, you got to get on his email list. Wally had advice for more sensible gardeners who do things at the right time according to the season, and he had advice for those with a glass house or a tunnel house because we're in winter, and it's what you would be doing as we head into the shortest day. Turns out, don't grow planting plants. <laughs> what should we be doing, Wally? Okay, at the moment, um yeah, it depends on where you are in New Zealand too, to a certain extent. Um, some people will have done green crops in their veggie gardens, right, which can be done. 
if you're growing in a tunnel house and you're growing in the soil, not in containers, um, a green crop is things like lupin, mustard, etc., which you plant. Uh, well, you don't really plant. You just scatter the seeds and cover them a little bit. They germinate and grow. And then later on, the idea of a green crop is two things. A, it prevents a lot of weeds because you've already got something growing there, so weeds are harder to establish. And secondly, they take up the nutrients that are in the soil that you used in your last growing season, and they store them in themselves. And then later on, you cut them down. And in the old days, we used to dig them in, right? So uh, we were burying the goodness. These days, I say, well, that's, you know, a lot of work. Um, it's better to cut them down, let them lay on the ground, and then put some nice purchased compost over the top of them. Mm. And and uh, it's ready to plant. No no digging, no mucking around, disturbing the soil. Um, soil disturbance is something that you try to avoid. Oh, really? And, yeah. Um, because in the soil, you've got soil life. You've got worms. You've got um, microcilium fungi. And you've got um, a whole lot of beneficial uh, microbes, right? Now, when you go digging around, you're, you're disrupting. It's like um, putting a spade into a great, enormous spade into a city <laughs> or drop an atomic bomb. Yeah. You know, you're destroying a whole lot of life. My goodness. Right. So if you leave. I, I, I thought, and this is my ignorance again, I thought that digging it over was the greatest thing you could do for soil because it would sort of aerate it and make it lighter. And I can remember uh, my uncle had a huge rope tree hoe, which scared the living bejesus out of me as a little boy. And he'd be up and down his garden, smashing heck out of it with this rope tree hoe. And you're suggesting that you're breaking up the ecology, I guess, of the soil. Mm. And releasing CO2, which everybody goes, oh, you're not allowed to let out <laughs> CO2 go. Uh, it's going to destroy the planet, my God. So you you would conceivably have a vegetable garden that you never dig. Yeah. Wow. I didn't think that was possible. In the old days, um, people dug their gardens on the pretext that the subsoil down below had a lot of mineral value to their garden and they would turn um, the topsoil down into the uh, below and bring the lower soil up. Now, there's a certain amount of logical reason in that, um, and, yes, it, it helps. Um, but in an established garden that's been doing well, What's the point? Uh, go to the gym, pay some money, do your exercise that way. <laughs> <laughs> leave leave the soil alone. And, and this to the point, very point, like weeding. Ideally, you should never pull a weed out, right, because you're disrupting the soil. Instead, I use a sharp carving knife and I cut a weed off 
just below the surface of the soil, right, taking the weed away, leaving the roots intact in the soil to rot and feed the soil and the soil life, right? And then the plant that I've taken off the weed, I lay that on the ground and within a week or two, the soils come, microbes and so forth, they come up, grabbed it, and it's disappeared. It's like if you mow your lawn and you don't use a catcher, okay, she looks a bit shabby for a few days, but within a week or so, what happened? It's all gone. Where's it gone? It's gone back down. And it's you been- are so wonderful, Wally, because you're just um, making so much sense and you're changing my whole conception of how I should be doing things because, uh, like, what you say seems so logical and yet traditionally it's not the way it's been done. True, yeah, yeah. I don't know why people changed uh, and started doing things differently. To what, like, if you go back in history, we were hunters and food gatherers, mm. um, and I'm talking about, you know, thousands of years ago, um, a primitive situation. We would just move to a place, throw our stuff, um, and then move on. Or if we're in an area where it was going to be uh, a bad winter, we'd move to the summer hunting grounds and then uh, later on, um, move back, um, whatever. And, of course, we never looked after the soil. But when we became civilised to the extent of not moving around, then we had to start looking after. And the best people in the planet for doing that was the Chinese, my God. On a small piece of land, they could feed a, a lot of people and they would overplant and I remember reading that when they didn't own the land, they, they actually um, hired it from the landowner. And the condition was with their land that when they finished and gave it back to the owner, it had to be as good as, if not better than, it was before they took it. Mm. Right? And they would do such things as the night cart, of course, mm-hmm was utilised. Um, they had fermenters where they'd ferment that along with the pig manure and uh, that would go into the ground. A lot of their uh, village houses had earth floors and a person would actually pay them to come and scrape off the top few inches of soil, which is very valuable because it's had all the rubbish and yes. bits and dust and God knows what food scraps have fallen into it, you know, into the floor, and then give them a fresh lot of uh, soil to replace. And they take that away because it's rich in nutrients to grow. They used everything. Nothing was wasted. My goodness. Well, I have to say, since I've started gardening and composting, I can't believe how much less rubbish I'm producing. Because I, I wouldn't have thought I produced much compostable material in a day, but you do. It's incredible. And um, I can imagine um, in the old days, uh, you know, what we throw away um, today is almost criminal when I look at it, when I think back to it, because you have all this beautiful green waste that I'm now carefully 
um, chopping up and putting in into my garden to grow. Right. See, harking back to years ago, and some people still do this, and I'm thinking particularly in a farming situation where you didn't have anybody coming around and pick up the rubbish, right? Mm. So in regards to the green waste from the kitchen scraps and so forth, they would dig a trench mm. in their garden, a spade or two deep, right, and leave it open. And then as they had um, scraps and stuff, they would stick it into one end of the trench until it came about level with the ground, and then they put some soil over it, and then they put stuff in front of that and keep on going until the whole trench was filled up. That was right? my dad. That's what my yep. dad did, yeah. And then they'd dig a trench alongside, but the plant trench that they've just filled, they'd plant their cabbages in yes. top of it. And, of course, it was going into this nutrient-rich yeah. soil. Yeah. And they'd just grow like bilio. Like crazy. And and now we throw it away, and if we do have a garden, we busy run off to Mitre 10 to buy some fertiliser. Now, let me take you back to people with their tunnel house and glass house. Some that are growing on the ground might have a green crop growing. Others won't. And you had a great tip for what you could do with your tunnel house or glass house at this time of year. Right. Okay. Now, if it's been used during the season – there's been an insect problem, more than likely, white fly, maybe aphids, maybe other insects problem in the glasshouse. So come the end of the season, your tomato plants have come to the end of their days. They're not going to do anything much more, um, mainly because of the cold and also the shorter daylight hours. So then the house has got a lot of insect pests either in eggs or harbouring over in the cracks and crevices, waiting for spring so they can reinfest your new crop. The ideal thing, which all the nurserymen do, is fumigate the house. Now, if you've got tomato plants in there at the end of their days, don't pick them up or pull them out and take them outside and put them in the compost heap. Not a good idea because they're covered in insects. All you're going to do is transfer those insects from inside the house to the outside gardens, my God, where they will establish it themselves and then be a problem in the spring. Instead, you leave them in the glass house. Then you get some yellow powder sulfur, sometimes called subline sulfur or flowers of sulfur. We we sell, in fact, we're about the only people that actually sell it nowadays. And the garden centres, some garden centres buy it from us and sell it. So um, it's a particular thing, and its full name is yellow powder sulphur. No, it actually comes under the names of subline sulphur. So, sorry, so what is flower, that? I did, flowers of sulphur? Flowers Flower, as in? As flowers in, of sulphur is, is, is it, its common name. Is it wheat flour flour or flour you grow in your garden flour? Oh, no, flowers as you grow in the garden. So flour, flour of flour sulfur. Oh. It, it's what comes out of volcanoes. Oh, wow. It's yellow. It's a yellow powder, right? Yeah. Okay. It's got, it's got many, many, many uses. Um, so one of the uses is you burn that in your glass house. Now, to do so, you need to put it onto a half shovel 
about two or three tablespoons of sulfur or onto a spade because it should be on a metal surface. You've got to um, make sure you don't cause a fire and on a metal surface it'll be safe, right? Because once sulfur gets burning, it's very, very hard to put out, right? And, of course, you don't want a fire brigade coming down and <laughs> putting out your glass house. Yes. So you're on a metal spade. It's hard to light. So you've got your couple of tablespoons there. If you've got one of those uh, flamethrower um, things for weeding, it's got a real strong flame, um, that will start it, no trouble at all. You won't start it with a big lighter easily. So if you have a problem starting it, you can get a bit of methylated spirits and just dampen part of it or maybe use one of those fire starters and and have that there associated with the sulphur. Like that, once the sulphur starts burning, it will burn. It creates a very choking, dense fume of sulphur fumes, right? And it's those fumes that uh, will obliviate and kill the pests in the glass house, right? Your old tomato plants are still there, so all the insects that are on them will get killed. Some tomato plants will actually survive the fumes. Some will succumb to it, um, as I found out from past experience. Um, You've closed up all the vents. After you lift the sulphur, you get out because if you stay there, you'll start to find it very difficult to breathe and then you won't breathe at all. You'll end up like that white fly. Not like the white fly, <laughs> dead as a doorknob. Okay, oh. so get out, close the door, and you leave the place closed up for, say, a day, you know, 24 hours, and then you open her up. Now, at the time which you open it up, there should probably be no plants of any consequence in there. The thing is to prevent insects getting into your glass house, and that can be done in several ways. In the old days, we used to plant marigolds in our glass house. The marigolds would create a smell and disguise the smell of the tomato plants, right? And white fly flying around wouldn't be able to smell the tomato plants because of the smell of the um, marigolds, and they'd fly on by and go somewhere else. These days, we use what my neem tree granules, Wally's neem tree granules. We put that on the soil of the glass house. That creates a smell without having to grow a lot of marigolds. And once again, it disguises the smell of the tomato plants. Also, we have what's called sticky yellow fly traps, right? Now, these are special yellow colour which attracts insects such as whitefly, adults on the wing, and other insect pests attracted to the yellow colour. They're sticky, so when they land on them, um, they can't get off. They're stuck, right? And they are hung by the vents, um, by the door, and above the tomato plants you're growing. So in a season... These little, no, what, about a foot long, just about, um, they were just massively covered by thousands and thousands of insects. Mm. And every one of those insects didn't get a chance to lay any more eggs on Mm. your plants. So it reduces down 
the problems of having to spray or whatever by having the traps. So you've got lines of defence. You've got the smell from neem tree granules, um, overriding the smell of the plants you've got in there. That helps. Then you've got the traps of the yellow sticky pads. And as a result of that, you have a relatively free season without having to do much in the way of spraying to control pests. So just to recap, in the winter season when you have no plants of any consequence in your glasshouse, tunnel house, you fumigate it with the yellow, yellow, yellow powder sulfur, flowers of sulfur, or sublime sulfur, did I get all that right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and by the way, would that you wouldn't do that if your plants are growing and you had a pest problem because it would whack your plants as well. Yeah, that is a danger because the fumes will uh, inadvertently kill some plants. Okay. My, so you... my own experience was one time I did it when I had several different varieties of tomatoes growing in the a glass house. I bombed it with the sulfur and some died, some survived. Okay. So it depended on the variety. What what I would do after if the plants were there is after the fumes had gone and it was safe to go back in, I'd go in there with a hose and give the uh, a sprinkling of water over the foliage yes. to wipe the sulfur off. Okay. Sulfur sensitive plants. Now some plants uh Sulfur sensitive apricots, for instance, sulfur sensitive. If you spray an apricot tree with sulfur, it will die. Simple. Okay. Um, okay. Cucumbers are reasonably sulfur sensitive too. So we have this um, fumigant, and then as we start planting, we want to keep the pests out. And if they do get in, we want to kill them and stop them laying eggs and having a pest problem. Now, you particularly mentioned tomatoes. Is that because tomatoes smell and are very attractive to uh, insects? Are they a particular problem or are other plants also in your glasshouse a problem? Well, you know in the beginning of the season when you plant up a or buy a tomato plant and you so forth. You can really smell it, don't okay. you? Okay. Um, they, they have a strong smell. They are a particular problem. And to get that smell, we overwhelm it with the neem granules, neem tree granules or marigolds, and that disguises the smell. So the little white fly sailing past thinks, oh, I'll go to Roddy's tunnel house and lay some eggs on his tomatoes. but. I've tricked that little white fly because I've got the granules down there and it can't smell the tomato and it sails past and goes to Calvin's next door mm. and lays its eggs there. And so that's, I got that. And tomatoes are a particular problem because of the smell, but presumably the white fly doesn't just attack tomatoes, it, it gets into everything. Yeah, it, your cucumbers growing in there. They'll okay. get infested under the leaves with lots of nymphs and white fly. Okay. Um, capsicum and, the, and chilies, not so bad. Okay. So we keep the smell down. And then our next defense 
as sticky yellow fly like traps. Fly traps. Well, and we put that everywhere, and the ones that do get in get stuck on it and don't get an opportunity to to lay their eggs. And that means that we can certainly reduce our risk of an attack and therefore reduce our need to be going in there willy-nilly spraying our plants. Right. Okay. And, and with the white fly sticky traps, you can buy them like we sell them, packs yeah. of five, but you can make your own. And as in the old days with Dulux, it used to be Dulux canary yellow was the mm. ideal colour of yellow for it. But they don't have Dulux canary yellow anymore. So you have to find something of a comparable colour because the the yellow colour is most important that it's correct. Otherwise, it's not going to work particularly well. Um, so piece of three-ply, um, say... I'm in feet and inches, say about five inches wide and yep. about eight inches long, right, yep. uh, yep. with a hole in so you can hang it on a yep. piece of string, um, painted the yellow all over, and then after the paint's dry, you can do one or two things. You can smear a cooking oil over the yellow um, painted trap or you could put a plastic bag over it and smear the oil on the plastic bag. The advantage of that, of course, is that you take the bag off and put another bag on and, and, and oil that, where wow. otherwise you would take the trap down, wash it, and re-oil it and put it back up. Wow, that's amazing. That is that is truly amazing. Um what a great tip that is, Wally. And so would you expect in the normal course of events to get through a year without necessarily having to spray? Basically, yes. It, it depends on circumstances. Um, the worst problem, of course, is outside of your glass house, maybe over the fence and your neighbours, there's a whole lot of whitefly on whatever plants right and of course as they're searching around inadvertently they will find their way in or they might get sucked into your glass house because the heat goes mm. up they get sucked in through the doorway or whatever and oh oh hello there's a whole lot of tomatoes in here oh good <laughs> tomato <Yeah>. heaven <laughs> yeah and and so they lay their eggs but be that as it may each year you can start off at year zero because you fumigate it mm. and uh, have another crack. It's not like you're carrying the pests from one season to the next. Right. And then you go and buy some plants or get some plants from somewhere. You take them into your glass house and lo and behold, there's a whole lot of eggs on those plants you didn't know. And when yeah. it comes to white fly eggs, it's very hard to see them and rub them out. So once again, we bring in our problems more often than not. Um, insects in the house, uh, which have come from outside, are often brought in because we cut some flowers outside, mm. put them in a vase, and then the insects on those flowers, decide your house plant's a nice place to live, mm. and then you've got a problem. Presumably, 
uh, this is another good reason then to always grow from seeds. Growing from seed, you're starting off uh, without introducing from outside. The nurseries themselves, that they try to make sure the plants that they sell um, to the garden centres are relatively free, but it's it's impractical, it's hard to do. And then at the garden centre too, um, you quite often see white um, butterflies flying around, et cetera, et cetera. There's insects. And, and, of course, they're bringing in plants from lots of nurseries, and some of those plants might be trees or shrubs, which they don't treat for a white fly, but it could have white fly on it. And those white flies are not going to really be happy on that ornamental shrub. Instead, they'll look, oh, over there, there's some tomato seedlings. Mm. Right. Mm. In. I um one of the things I've been doing, Wally, because of the we've had rainy days, I have been enjoying immensely reading your gardening books. And I've learned such a lot. So thank you for writing those. I also I had a lady on who was homesteading over in Dunedin, and she was telling me that she was relying on the Star Garden Guide. Have you heard of that one? Oh, gardening by the moon. No, it's by the, the stars. No, it's the Star newspaper. I think it's from Dunedin. It's oh, from right. the Otago okay. Daily Times. Right, okay. And so I went on to the Otago Daily Times and I ordered it, and it's an amazing uh, book because it goes back over a hundred years, a hundred and twenty years. It was first published, and it was by a early gardener. Um, of some repute whose name escapes me, which is embarrassing. Um, and it's like in its 19th or 25th or something edition. And of course, the Otago Daily Times is owned by the, by a family. And it was the grandfather um, who started this. And it's quite a wonderful book because of its A, its history, but B, it's been quite pertinent to me because it's particular for, for Otago. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I have been enjoying uh, reading my gardening books or reading reading your gardening books, and that's been very helpful for learning as well, and, and that, that's something else we can be doing in winter, I guess. What else could we be doing in our garden this time of year, Wally? Okay. Now, one of the problems that I have people contact me each year around about this time or a little bit later on going into the spring is that the citrus tree is dying or other plants are dying. And and I say to them, well, okay, and quite often they send me a picture. And now if the picture's good, I can see the ground underneath and I've got a mulch underneath oh, it. Now, a mulch? mulch. A mulch is what people use in dry times in the summertime they put a layer of material ah. it could be bark it could be sawdust it could be whatever right over the soil yeah to conserve moisture it's so, a good thing right oh in the summertime magic it's it's ideal because you when you water, that water is not going to be evaporated off by sun and wind. It'll be held because you've got this mulch over the soil. It could be weed mat uh, with bark over the top, whatever. 
right? It's a mulch, or what we call a mulch. M-U-L-C-H, I think it's really. Okay, now you get into the winter and the wet times, and, of course, the moisture in the soil doesn't escape because there's a mulch there. Hence, the roots in the soil uh, are not getting oxygen, the soil becomes stagnant, and the roots rot, and the tree the citrus tree or the plant or whatever dies because it's got no roots left. Mm. And that it's it's a real problem. Um and is that people, just is that just for citrus trees or other trees or citrus trees particularly prone? It it can be for um anything that doesn't like wet feet. Right? Um, I had one instance uh, some years ago. There was a lady. She had, I can't remember the name of them, but some very expensive ornamental trees, right? And she planted them whenever, and they had recarpeted their house, and they had all, all this old carpet. So she thought, oh, this will be good. I'll put the old carpet over the ground uh, around these trees, and um, that will conserve the moisture in the summertime, which it did. But then when the winter came and the rains came, of course the trees suffered and they were dying. She rang me up and she said, what can I do? And and I found out she had carpet down. I said, well, that's your problem. The carpet is holding the moisture in the ground and not allowing the soil to breathe and the roots are rotting. So is it in it? Is it too late to do something, or is it? Can you do something once you pick the problem up? Yeah, just scrape the mulch away, scrape it away, rake it away, clear the root zone of uh, any plants such as citrus which don't like wet feet, and then the soil can breathe. Um, the moisture in the soil, the wet soil, and and let's face it, we've got places where it's flooding all mm. over the country. You know. Mm. Um, mm. That amount of water is, of course, going to kill. There's nothing much you can do about that. But um, in situations where they're getting a lot of rain and they've got a citrus tree or other vulnerable plants, then they've got this problem. Now, besides taking the mulch away, which is the first thing, we have a, a spray called Perfection. It's like perfection, but it's P-E-R-K. F-E-C-T-I-O-N, perk fiction, because the commercial variety is called perk, P-E-R-K, okay. right? So <laughs> yeah. we call it perfection for rose and other plants. Now, spray uh, your citrus tree or whatever vulnerable plants with that. That goes down to the roots and help them regenerate, right? Mm. And it's also magic on buxus. You know these people that grow these lovely little buxus hedges or yes, these I know those walls, etc. Yes. They're prone to a disease called buxus disease, right? It's because the foliage becomes so dense that the moisture on the leaves, when it rain or whatever, can't escape, and that moisture sits there and allows the fungus disease to establish, right? Mm. Our perfection will bring back from virtually deathbed, a buxus 
back into full glory over a period of a few months, as long as it's still got some leaf left. How, how does it do that, Wally? Um, it uh, regenerates. It's a kind of tonic, mm-hmm. uh, and it regenerates the plant and helps it overcome. It's ideal for diseases such as uh, botrytis, photophora, black spot, et cetera, et cetera. People use it on their roses in the beginning of the season uh, to prevent or help prevent black spot and other fungal diseases. Um, blight on tomatoes, potatoes, um, it will, if you catch them in the early stage of blight, it will actually um, kill or control the disease and you'll be able to harvest your crop. Um, and that's another thing, potatoes. Now is the perfect time to grow potatoes. Mm. Right? Yeah. Now, the reason being, in New Zealand, we have a, an insect pest these days called the tomato potato psyllid, right? And and this came from Australia too. And it devastated potato crops um, down Opiki Way, out from Palmerston North there, all the way down to Shannon used to be potato growers. Now you go drive down that road and you don't even see a potato grower anymore. Why? Because the psyllid actually destroyed their livelihood and now they're growing other things um, with the land, no longer potatoes. The psyllid came in from overseas and it breeds so rapidly when the temperatures are in the mid-20s that there are literally thousands and thousands of millions of the things, right? When they attack a plant, such as a tomato, potato, tamarillo, they inject a toxin into the plant. And in the case of the potatoes, if they attack um, later in the season, no, sorry, early in the season, the tubers underneath will only grow as big as a marble and start reshooting. If they attack the plant later in the season when the tubers have actually established reasonably well, then when you harvest your potatoes, there'll be dark rings inside them and they'll taste no good, right? So that's the two indications that you've had solid problems. But because temperature is the main control of them, if you were to plant potatoes now and you think, oh, my God, I can't do that because of the frost, no, you dig a trench. You dig a trench, a good spade or spade and a half deep, right? And then you put your potato, which has already got its little sprouts on it, into the bottom of the trench. And underneath the potato, you put some goodies. Now, ideally, the best I've found is you put some um, gypsum, about a tablespoon of gypsum. You put uh, a small amount of uh, sheep manure pellets and a little bit, about a quarter of a teaspoon of a product we had called Biofos. That's a phosphate. Yeah. You sit your potato at the bottom of the trench on top of that little mound of goodies, right? And you cover it over. So it's just covered the sprouts, you can no longer see them. Within a short period of time, of course, those sprouts will grow and appear above the soil. You then put some more soil over to just cover them. And you keep on going. 
you never let the sprouts get like two or three inches tall because if you do, you can still cover them and protect them from frost. But the real secret of this is you won't get any extra potatoes because as long as you keep covering them before they get tall, they will produce potatoes all the way up the hole. Ah. Up and up and up. And so it's like growing a potato in a barrel. You could have a barrel full of potatoes if you did the same thing, right? Literally a barrel full of potatoes. Mm. Um, so once you get up to soil level, and, of course, um, at that point of time, you start to mound, as mm. you would do normally when you've only planted them shallow, shallow, right? As a result of that, you're going to be able to harvest your potatoes by labour weekend, depending upon variety, right? before the temperatures get up, before the sinners come along and devastate the crop. So you get it in early yes. and you get the crop out early. Now, a problem arises at that point of time, I've found, is some people, um, they, they dig up a couple of um, potatoes and, oh, the tubers are good size, uh, lovely, no rings inside them, good to go. They leave the rest of the crop in the ground and then it gets attacked. So then they dig the next lot up, they've got the dark rings in. The reason being is they left the foliage on the plants. They could have left the potatoes in the ground, but they need to cut the foliage off down to ground level, cover the stubble with a bit of soil, and let the potatoes just sit there till they're ready to dig. No foliage, no soil to attack. Simple. But you'd have to take the foliage away or you can just leave it on top? Oh, yeah, well, you'd probably put it in the compost heap. Got it. And but, how long will your potatoes stay in the ground like that? Quite some time before they reshoot, as you find out. Wow. Um, if you leave potatoes in the ground. Oh, I'm going to be doing this with Grace, Wally. You're giving me rather than my board beans. Now, seed potatoes. You buy when you want to plant potatoes, you have to buy a seed potato, right? That's what they say, yes. They, they do it for a reason. Tell me. The, well, their um, argument is we have certified these potatoes are free of disease, right, or virus, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's very good. But the potatoes that you bought from the supermarket to eat and they're left in the cupboard and they sprouted, no reason you can't grow them. And as people find, when they peel the damn things and throw the peelings out in the compost, they've suddenly got a crop of potatoes. <laughs> so you don't need seed potatoes. Um, the You don't, but a lot of people prefer. Yeah. Um, and, and the seed potatoes, they're already in cold storage from last season, right? Yeah. And they keep them in cold storage to prevent them from sprouting, right? When they come out of cold storage and they come into a warmer temperature, that's what initiates the sprouting. Hence the reason when you buy potatoes at the supermarket, you take them home, put them in the kitchen, it's warmer and they sprout. If you put them in the fridge, they wouldn't sprout for some time. Okay. So for argument's sake, Grace and I decide we'll do some plantings of potatoes. Even in Otago, we could be doing this. Yes. 
Yeah, because so, you're going to be safe from frost because they're always going to be covered. Got it. We're keen on our J-Bennies. So I head off to the supermarket and I buy some J-Bennies, right? Now, at this stage, they've got no shoots. Right. What do I do? Okay, just take them home, put them in the kitchen. They'll sprout. <laughs> the warmth. <laughs> okay. It's sprouting. And, yeah. and, and, and when they you sprout. You must think I'm pretty stupid, right? <laughs> when, when they sprout, we do a thing called greening them off, right? Oh, yeah. And this is where the little they've got little sprouts on them, right? Yeah. So we take them out, and ideally in a carport is a good place to do it. But now you've got a tunnel house. You put them in the tunnel house, right? Yeah. You leave them sitting in the sunlight with their little sprouts on. That hardens up the sprouts yeah. because of the light and makes them go greenish colour. Then they're ready to plant. My goodness. Um when you say sprout, do you need to wait for the sprouts to get to a certain size? No. Um, once they – it's the eyes that sprout, right? So yeah. as soon as you see some movement there and they're coming out, right? Yeah. If you left them in your dark cupboard, of course, they become great big, long, white sprouts. Yeah. Okay. Useless because they're, they're too soft and no good. No good Why? for planting. Why do I have to sprout them before I put them in the ground? Um, is it a warmth thing? Yeah, it is because it gets them going. Okay. Um, if you put them into cold soil, they might just sit there until spring. Got it. And then uh, when the soil warms up, they think, oh, it's time to go now. So oh, how exciting. Oh, how exciting. Oh, gosh, you're wonderful. I'm going to get some. Oh, next time we're on, I'll give you a report. And the trench, just out of interest, did you say one and a half spades depth or two spade depths? Yeah, whatever you prefer. Um, at least a spade depth, but yeah. one and a half spade depth. You just dig your trench, leave the soil on the side, and that's going to be used as you cover over over a period of time. You check them every day or two, and as soon as you see some little sprouts, yep. um, green foliage comes through, that is vulnerable to frost. So yep. if you covered it with a bit of soil, of course the soil is insulating. Great. Do you know, I'm so slow, I have to listen to what you say, I have to take notes as you're talking, and then I have to read your book, and then I think, I think, I, I think I've got this. Because it is amazing when you start up. It's a lot of information, Wally. Yeah, yeah. And and somebody like me had done it for too many years. Well, I we worked out you started out. you started when you're seven and I started when I'm sixty-seven. So, you know, you got sixty years on me. Okay. Um, yep. Now, everyone, we've been talking real talk with Rodney Hyde with Wally Richards. You can give Wally a ring. He'll have his people answer. I always make that joke. It's Wally who answers. You can give Wally a ring, 0800-466-464. You can send Wally an email, wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. The Garden News is tricky. It's got one N. Figure it out. wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. That's a gardening test that Wally has in because it took me about 10 goes to get the email to him because he wants to sort of cut out the um 
people like me that are a bit slow. It's Garden News. So Wally Jr. at gardennews.go.nz. Give him a call, 0800 He is amazing. Wally, I just love talking to you, and you're very inspirational because I just want to go gardening whenever I've spoken to you, and it's uh, it's overcast here but not raining. So right. um, we'll start getting out. I think I actually have some potatoes in the pantry that might have some eyes, and I'll put them in the tunnel house. Um, I'm so excited by gardening, and I'm so excited by I enjoyed my lettuces so much, and the amount of money I saved, it's gobsmacking. It's mm, unbelievable mm. when you start looking at it. And I go down the supermarkets and I think I'm going to grow that, I'm going to grow that, I'm going to grow that. Um, so thank you so much for your help, Wally. Uh, we shall talk again in a fortnight. Okay, just one point before we go. Yes, um, please. The products we talked about, like the flowers of sulfur, um, yes. et cetera, et cetera, we have a mail-order website that people can go to, yes. which is the same as our telephone number. So it's www.0800-466-464.co.nz. And I can order straight on that webpage, correct? Yeah, but you can't pay for it on that because what happens is when the order comes to me, I phone you and I sort out the freight and the mode of payment, like you can do credit cards safely over the phone or bank transfer, and I talk to you and explain anything about the products at the same time. It's what we call, it's a, it's a funny word, it's called service. <laughs> well, you're, you're amazing. I am amazed, by the way, how many people know you and have interacted with you over the years. You're okay. quite well known. And I had a wonderful email from, oh, a garden place, a garden place nearby. And they said, what a character you are um, and how much I've enjoyed over the years doing business with you. So, Wally, you do know about customer service. You're always a pleasure. That was Wally Richards. We've been talking on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, uh, the popular man, the man of the hour, Wally Richards, helping people feed themselves, feed their families, feed their neighbours with beautiful nutrient-dense food while saving untold amounts of money, which is not to be sneezed at these days. Thank you for listening. And that was Wally Richards, our gardening guru. Lovely. Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.